0: Shalom, shalom, friends. Thank you so much for being here. We know others are still joining us, um, and we're so glad you're here uh, to talk about this very important topic, this um, topic we've been talking about for a long time, but with new angles today, of course, um, you know, is peace possible in Jerusalem, in Yerushalayim? Itai Flesher, who I just had the, um, the schutz, the the merit to have coffee with in Yerushalayim just a few, uh, a month or two ago, I don't know how long ago it was, maybe two months ago, um, is the education director at Kids for Peace in Kids for Peace Jerusalem, an interfaith youth movement for Palestinians and Israelis from East and West Jerusalem to come together. Since making Aliyah from Australia five years ago, he has had COVID once, played guitar twice at each of his kids' schools, spent three years learning Arabic, had four Pfizer vaccines, and is looking forward to voting in his fifth Knesset election in October. So it's been a pretty impactful few years here. Um, And Itai, we are excited to be here with you. Thank you for joining
1: us. It's wonderful to be with you in Arizona and uh, all over the United States, where you're joining from uh, this morning. It's now evening here in Jerusalem, it's eight o'clock. And um, thank you for the wonderful introduction, And It was wonderful to meet you. Uh, in Jerusalem and hopefully now that um, everyone can fly, you'll all be able to visit in Jerusalem soon. So um, in regards to our topic for tonight, um, I'm going to be talking about a little bit about where I work and what I what I do in this city, which is um, something that I think is is quite unique. and uh, and then I'll speak for about 45 minutes and then we'll open up for questions. So I work in an organization called Kids for Peace. Um, We started in 2002, during the Second Intifada, when a group of four Jews, four Muslims and four Christians, um, these were all kids in seventh grade, and their parents decided that their kids need to talk to each other, their kids need to know who one another are and their stories and their faiths and their traditions. And um, together we've been operating now for over 20 years as an after-school youth movement, with a goal of empowering youth to create more peaceful communities. Um, a little bit about my story. So I was I was born in Israel. I grew up in, in Australia. In Melbourne, I was a high school teacher for 15 years, mainly working in Jewish Zionist education. And then I made Aliyah in, in 2018 with my family. And the picture you can see there is the last time I was in Melbourne Airport. I haven't been there since because of... Uh, the the little pandemic that you've all heard about, but I'm looking forward to visiting there again in in September. Um, So a a bit about Jerusalem and why we exist. Um, If you look very closely at this map, you'll see a black line. The black line is the municipal boundary of Jerusalem. The red line is the 1967 border. So as you can see, the municipal boundary of Jerusalem is much, much larger then the 1967 border. So what happened in 1967 was that Israel annexed the land of East Jerusalem, so it annexed all of this land, when you can see the mouse, but it didn't annex the people. So that means that the people, mainly the Palestinians of East Jerusalem, became residents of Israel, but not citizens of Israel, meaning they can't vote um, and have an Israeli passport and travel in the same way that Israeli Jews We do, Um, about 5% now do have Israeli citizenship, so it is possible to apply for, but it's quite a burdensome and and complicated process. If you look at the neighbourhoods here, you'll see that everywhere where it's blue is a Jewish neighbourhood, and everywhere that's yellow is a Palestinian or Arab neighbourhood. And what you'll notice is that, um, again, most of the Arab neighbourhoods are here in the east and the north of Jerusalem, and most of the Jewish neighbourhoods are here in the west of the city. So what that means is, is in effect, in addition to the wall that already exists in Jerusalem, there's almost like an invisible wall between the neighborhoods. So, In the neighborhood that I live in, like 99% of the people are Jewish. If you went to Beit Hanina, Shuafat, uh, Shech Sharach, uh, Jabal Mukaber, Sulbacher, Beit Safafa, all of those neighborhoods, 99% of the people who live there are arab palestinians most of them muslims um so it's not it's not really a mixed city in the sense that um we don't mix with each other because we live in very different neighborhoods and then in addition to that we also have different school systems so jewish children have three school systems to choose from which is mamlachti secular Dati religious and haredi ultra-orthodox and the palestinians have two school systems to to, to choose from the arab Israeli school system, or the tawjihi which is the Jordanian-Palestinian school system, and what that means is is that there's not one school in Jerusalem that has a Haredi, an Arab, a secular, you know, a religious Zionist child. Everyone is in these different schools from kindergarten. We don't have what's called what you would call in America a public school. We don't have that here. Everyone gets a school of their own ideology. Um, just, I just want to ask if I can. I just ask a question here. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that we have this sort of denominational school system? What could, what could you see as perhaps an advantage or a disadvantage of the way we organise the education in Jerusalem? Anyone that wants to speak can can just unmute yourself
2: and talk.
3: Yeah,
1: Australia. Yeah. Uh, 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 uh,
3: okay. 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 Um, uh, it didn't work out so well for the U.S.
1: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out so well for us.
3: Uh, that's just to throw that out there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Any other thoughts about the way we structure our school system here, Judy? Yeah.
2: Yeah. You get acculturated in your own culture, but you don't have the chance to really get to know your your age peers and to right. exchange ideas.
1: So so if I'm Haredi, it makes me more stronger in my Haredi beliefs. If I'm a secular Jew, it makes me more stronger in my secular beliefs, but it leaves me sort of with very little knowledge or awareness of what other children believe, what they watch on TV, who their friends are, all of that sort of thing is missing because I don't grow up with them, They don't live in my neighbourhood, and it's also very easy for me to hate them because I don't know anything about them. Um, so with with that in mind and keeping this sort of map in mind as well, um, we I want to I want to explain what we do at Kids for Peace. So we try and be a place where all of these different identities can come together. So we have over 150 kids from age grade six to 12 um, come to our bi-weekly meetings. Um, we do. We celebrate the festivals of all the religions. So, you know, in Ramadan we'll have an iftar meal. We'll uh, celebrate. You know, hey, give them donuts for Hanukkah. Have a Christmas tree for Christmas. Easter chocolate eggs. The kids love the food. The food works very well. Um, and we have overseas trips to to Belfast, to Washington. We have town hall events. We have a model United Nations community service. Olive harvest, So we're trying to build a community that is a home to everyone that lives in Jerusalem. And most people don't agree with what we do. They think that what we do is naive. Some think it's dangerous. Some think it's normalisation. Some think it won't make a change. We have a lot of opposition. I'm not going to say that everyone is sort of in line with with what we do. And uh, specifically, we we try and also welcome people that don't live in Jerusalem to see us and to see our story and to see what we do through through various tours. And one of the more powerful things we do is every year, well, this was until the pandemic, we took a group of kids to Northern Ireland. Anyone want to guess why do you think you can see here 15 kids from Jerusalem in in Northern Ireland? Why would we take the kids to Northern Ireland? Yeah. Okay. Um,
3: All right. Um, Because of the history in Belfast in particular, it was very dangerous there at one point in time because of religious differences, which also
1: were related to class differences, you know, but um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so exactly. So in Belfast, the the Catholics, which were much poorer than the Protestants, and, you know, the word gerrymandering actually comes from Belfast. um, When uh, all the all the neighbourhoods were gerrymandered so the Catholics could basically never have representation in Parliament based on their size of their population, you know, that happens in America too. Um, the their neighbourhoods are segregated into Catholic and Protestant neighbourhoods, that's still the case now. There's a wall that runs through Belfast as well, which ironically is called the Peace Wall. Um, but it was actually built after their peace agreement. They They used to have a police force that was entirely British. Now they have a mixed police force, which is a mixture of British and Irish um, policemen. Uh, Their school system is still highly segregated as well. So Belfast is not necessarily a city that's living in peace, but since the peace agreement they signed in 1998, it's also not a city that's living in war. You don't hear about regular, you know, Bombings, explosions, you know, it is tense obviously around the marching season in, in, in July, August. But aside from that, it's it's relatively calm compared to to the 70s and 80s uh, during the troubles. And so we take the kids there to sort of see what that our conflict is not unique and that there are other places in the world that have dealt with religious differences, dealt with national differences. And somehow look to to finding solutions to those things as well in order to give these kids hope, in order to give them perhaps uh, some horizon that a different way is possible. Um, Some of the other things we do is we do a makerspace program where we use technology um, to, to get the kids to imagine what peace might mean for them. We do a lot of team building games as well. Um, we get kids to sort of write their messages of, of what they want to see in, in the world. Um, we take kids to the United States. Again, this is, this is all pre-COVID, um, to, to speak to, to US congressmen and women about Jerusalem so they can hear from Israeli and Palestinian teenagers about what life is like here. Um, we, in 2001, merged with Seeds of Peace which is a much larger global movement that has branches in every country that is in might here. So the U.S., Canada, India, Pakistan, Jordan, Palestine, Egypt, uh, France, the U.K., etc. So it's a real we're really part of a global um, movement now of of peace organizations that that's trying to do this work in in several conflict zones. Um, the first seeds of peace. Uh, one of the first seeds of peace camp actually happened on the White House lawn just after the signing of the Oslo Agreement, where you can see there uh, Clinton, Rabin and Arafat holding Seeds of Peace t-shirts with the kids from our organization in the background. And and our organization is very much tied to the peace process. And that's why it's called the Seeds of Peace, because the idea was that these seeds, these children would grow into peace. That was the aim of the peace process. As you all know, without me giving you a history lesson, there isn't peace now. The peace process did not result in what Israelis or Palestinians desired. I'm not going to go into why that happened, because that's like a whole other topic. But um, on the one hand, you could say of peace was a failure because the movement, the change that we were trying to bring didn't happen. And, and, and some would even say the situation now is even worse. There's more hatred. There's more violence. The The likelihood of peace is not on the horizon at all. There's, there's no negotiations happening between Israelis and Palestinians. It hasn't happened for for several years now. And so a lot of people say, well, why have a peace organisation when you live between two populations that clearly aren't interested in peace? They're interested in the status quo for, for various reasons. Um, and I, I refuse to accept that, maybe because I'm an optimist, maybe because I'm an educator. And i really believe in the power of of education and of dialogue so what you can see in this picture are, are jewish muslim and christian children sitting in a circle and talking to one another about their faith about their schools about their history about their narrative about what's important to them in life about their fears about how they deal with racism about how they deal with inequality about how they deal with things that are not right in the world, and they're having very honest conversations. We do this in a fun way, obviously. We have games and we have cards and we have videos and all sorts of techniques to get them involved in in these meaningful conversations. But what they do at Kids for Peace is really experience for two hours a week what peace might look like, what, what might Jerusalem feel like when we aren't segregated, when we aren't separated by language, when we aren't separated by nationality. And it gives them an opportunity to, to have these very real conversations. This is our um, full education program. Um, and you can also see in the picture there an iftar meal during Ramadan, where for a lot of Jews, it was the first time they'd ever celebrated um, a... The breaking of the fast, which is traditionally done on Ramadan. Um, So so let's look at now why there isn't peace. Um, There's lots of theories to this, but I want to share something that I I think you probably won't hear from other people, but it's something that I've really come strongly to believe. So um, when when John Kerry, um, who was the former US Secretary of State, he spent about eight years shuttling between israeli and palestinian leaders doing negotiations And when he ended his term in in 2016 um, he wrote a he wrote an article about what happened in all these negotiations he said something that i i found to be very true he said in the end i believe the negotiations did not fail because the gaps were too wide but because the level of trust was too low both sides were concerned that any concessions would not be reciprocated and would come at too great a political cost. So, what he's saying there is ultimately, all of the issues Jerusalem, borders, water, security, airports, all of those things we have solutions to all of those things. Everyone kind of knows when there's a peace agreement, what it's going to look like, give or take, you know, five or 10%, but we all know that why don't we sign on the dotted line? Because we don't trust one another. We think that the other person is lying. We think that the other side is not going to be fair to their side of the agreement or their population won't let them uh, carry out the things that they've promised. And there's good reason for that. You all know of of the Rabin assassination after he made peace with the Palestinians. You all know of the Anwar Sadat assassination, the Egyptian leader after he made peace with the Israelis. So, you know, we have a track record of um, peace being a very risky thing to do in the, in the Middle East. Um, and the the organization that I'm part of, Kids for Peace, we're part of a wider organization called All Map, the Alliance for Middle East Peace of 160 different peace organizations. So that what we're trying to do is essentially build trust. We're working on the ground in all of these different organizations from Rabbis for Human Rights, Project Rosanna, A Land for All, 50-50 Startups, Yosemot uh, to, Avraham, to say, look, nothing's going to change if we don't start at the grassroots level. Um, I often compare it to the LGBT struggle. You know, to be out in LGBT in the 1970s was probably really, really hard. To be out today, not in every state <laughs> in America, but in most states in America, Sure, is much much easier because so much work was done in the grassroots to to show people this is not something you need to be afraid of. And at the moment, the the peace movement, we like one or two percent of the population. We're not we're not the majority. We're still a little bit in the closet, if you want to want to use that analogy. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to change that. Um, this was a survey done by AllMEP, and they found that ninety percent. Of Palestinians do not trust Israeli Jews, and 79% of Israeli Jews do not trust Palestinians. So you can see huge, huge numbers on both sides just have a deep distrust of the other side because of the pain that we've caused one another. And so what we're trying to do is, in a way, we're trying to create a constituency or a lobby that will that will say there is a partner on the other side, and that and that peace is possible. This is another survey that I want to show you before I open up for questions so there was a survey that came out this week and it asked how how much do you support a two-state solution and usually this number is about 35 38 percent on the Palestinian side for some reason this month it was much lower it was 28 percent on the Palestinian side but on the Israeli side it sort of hovers between 40 and 42 percent but the last survey I saw was So the vast majority of Israelis and Palestinians don't support a two-state solution. And there's various other solutions as well that they support even less. Um, But here's something interesting. Um, The survey asked Israelis and Palestinians, what could we do to make you support a two-state solution more? So for Palestinians, they said if Israel acknowledged responsibility for the creation of the Palestinian refugee problem. The number jumps up to 60% supporting a two-state solution. Another one they asked was if Israel acknowledged the, the historic religious links between Palestinians and historic Palestine, support for a two-state solution jumps to 66%. The same thing on the Israeli side. If Palestinians recognize Israel as a Jewish state, support jumps to 59%. If they acknowledge the historic religious links um, of the jewish people to historic palestine agreement rises to 60 percent um, if jews who left homes and property in arab countries are compensated for their lost assets support for a peace agreement rises to 63 percent What we can see here is um, which i find fascinating though even though you would look at this and say there is a con- there isn't a constituency for peace when people start talking to each other and acknowledge each other's historic narratives. There is very much a constituency for peace. Uh, yeah, take a question now. You're finished. Are you only if you're finished? No, no, you can take it now. I, I like being interrupted. It's good. Oh, okay, sorry. All right. Yeah. I was just thinking about this. Uh, I taught
3: um and please no one, they, these kids were good. They're good kids. They weren't trying to be offensive or anything, but when I was teaching um, a history of racism class, um, like, you know, last, this past semester, there, these kids trusted me enough to say that um, their only um, idea for how any kind of forward movement could happen is if the over 40 crowd died. Um, There was that level of frustration. Now, I'm over 40, and they felt comfortable telling me this, though, and I didn't take offense to it or anything like that, but they it was pretty much like they wanted us to just, we were going to have to die in order for anything. Could you speak to that a little bit? maybe? Yeah,
1: so here it's the opposite. So in Jerusalem, the majority Mm -hmm. of the population is under 30. So Jerusalem is essentially a city of children, and I've seen surveys that compare views of children to adults in this case children are far more nationalistic than their parents so it's the opposite trend um okay Mm -hmm. kids are actually in this case because of what they experience um again i won't go into everything that happens because again that's a whole other lecture but because of things that happen in jerusalem often kids tend to be less likely to believe in peace than their parents thank you uh judy
2: yeah it was that i see that there's um there's a question about jews who left homes and property in arab countries uh, mm-hmm. seeking compensation raises support among israelis but yeah. did anybody ask the question of uh, leaving homes and property in israel proper and would that increase support among palestinians
1: um, yes, there, there was a question. I, the survey had like 50 questions, so I didn't put all of them in. But they, I think from memory, I don't remember the exact wording, but there was a question about acknowledging the Palestinian right of return. And I think it was also, yeah, about 60% would be far more likely to support a peace agreement if that happened. Now, at the moment, if you look at what's on this slide, there's no consensus around this. So there's no Israeli leader that's going to Ramallah and he's going to say these things and there's no Palestinian leader that's going to come to Tel Aviv or Jerusalem and say these things like we are I'm dreaming here okay like we're a long long way from this because at the moment saying these things is like political suicide you know it's it's basically saying I don't have a right to my country and uh and that just wouldn't be said today but what I'm trying to say is that there is there is a power of acknowledging the historic narrative of the other. If you look at the Israeli anthem, Hatikva, the words are, as long as the Jewish spirit is yearning deep in the heart with eyes turned towards the east, looking towards Zion, then our hope, the 2,000-year-old hope, will not be lost to be a free people in our land, the land of Zion and Jerusalem. An equivalent Palestinian poem from Mahmoud Darwish um, says
0: the following Shmuli, do you want to read uh, this poem for me? Sure. We Palestinians suffer from an incurable disease called hope. Hope for liberation and independence. Hope for a normal life where we should be neither heroes nor victims. Hope to see our children go to school without danger. Hope for a pregnant woman to give birth to a living baby in a hospital and not to a dead child in front of the military control post. Hope that our poets will see the beauty of the color red in roses rather than in blood. Hope that this land will recover its original name, land of hope and peace.
1: Thank you. So it's it's a very powerful poem and actually was from a speech and um, that Mahmoud Darwish gave in the 1970s. But it's not the Palestinian anthem, but but I when I first read this, it, it had so many residences for me with... Uh, with Hatikva about this yearning to be free, to be safe, to uh, to be able to to go to school, to be able to, um, I guess, experience life without oppression and occupation and and these sorts of things. And these are these are the things that I learn from from Kids for Peace. And um, I think what we are trying to do in in our youth movement in in the dialogues that we're having is to allow kids to talk about the conversation that we've just been having now for the past half hour, to give them an opportunity to think about what does it mean to be an Israeli, to be a Palestinian, to not have perhaps the same rights as our neighbours, to feel afraid. Um, One story I remember once, we took the kids to the Damascus Gate, and Damascus Gate is in East Jerusalem, and there's a lot of Israeli police there, hundreds, sometimes if not thousands. And we asked the israelis how do you feel when you see the police and every israeli said i feel much safer there's police around we asked the palestinians how do you feel with the police and they go i I feel much more unsafe because i don't know if those guns will be used on me Um, that's really sad you know when you when you think of police everyone should feel safe when you see police not not just half the population but we we have a police force in Jerusalem and Mishmar Gvul, the the you know the military police that's 95% Jewish. There's very very few Palestinians who serve in the uh, in the Israeli army, let alone Palestinians from East Jerusalem. Um, and so there's a problem of of safety. At the same time, there's a lot of Jews that will say, I won't walk in East Jerusalem wearing a kippah and a tzitzit and a tallit because If I obviously look like a Jew, I'm worried I'll be stabbed or or attacked or punched or harassed or something like that. So there's a real fear of going to the other side. There's a real fear of police. There's a real fear of not being in your neighbourhood. And then that generates a lot of distrust. And, And again, what we're trying to do in Kids for Peace is to be an antidote to that. And we're very small. As I mentioned, we're at best 150 people This year, we're a bit smaller about 90 people, but we're trying to give kids a a different voice, a different uh, narrative that perhaps something else is possible. So with that in mind, I'm gonna open now for for questions. Got a few more slides that I'll come back to at the end, but anything you wanna say, agree, disagree, I'm really open to hearing everything. So maybe we'll start with uh, Toby, thank you. Uh, From what
2: I'm hearing, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but what I'm hearing is that the two state solution is what what you're what everybody's looking at as, as a possible solution to this. Um, I have a friend in India who's a historian. And of course, India and Pakistan, and Bangladesh uh, have not been so successful. They have different issues, uh, some different issues, but they also have some that are similar. And of course, Ireland, uh, Ireland, the Republic, and I've been to all of those places, and talked to people from both sides. And I, I'm curious, and I mean, I guess uh, Ireland is probably the oldest of the two-state solutions, probably. So I'm wondering what what your feelings are about that, about the fact that there have been two-state solutions in other places that have not been successful. And again, I acknowledge. And I, yeah, British imperialism. Yeah, you got that right. But that's it's the same in the Middle East. I mean, the the British made the mess. I don't really care who made the mess. What I'm concerned with, like you are, I'm sure, is how do we unmake the mess? And I'm wondering if the two-state solution is the only solution, or if there is another
1: one. Yeah, I may go to say something about Northern Ireland before I say something about Jerusalem. So, in Northern Ireland, the the 1998 Good Friday Agreement. It doesn't create a two-state solution. Northern Ireland now has a shared government. So Stormont in Belfast has it was dysfunctional for many years, I have to say, and Brexit made it much worse. But um Stormont has in it Catholic and Protestant leaders. I think if the Prime Minister is a Catholic, the deputy prime minister has to be a Protestant. There's there's some sort of rule that they you you always have to have sort of both in. Every ministry and every office, and they rotate, you know, there's certain days of the year where they fly the British flag, there's certain days where they fly the Irish flag. Um, so what they've they've created in Northern Ireland, it's a bit more like a one-state solution in a way, with a power-sharing government. And what they've said is basically the big issue, which is: is Ireland going to be united, you know, with with the with the Ireland, the Republic? or is going to be divided, meaning the British will control the northern part. They basically, they didn't answer that question, because that's the key question of the conflict. And what they've said is, in future, that question will be open for a referendum. Now, at the moment, uh, I think the Protestants just slightly are the majority in Northern Ireland. But, you know, within 10, 20, 30 years, the Catholics will be the majority. And then when that happens, you know, probably Northern Ireland will will unite with the, with a republic. Um, but they it was interesting because it's a peace agreement that didn't actually solve the big issue, but I think enough people got what they wanted to to come together. Something really powerful we did in Northern Ireland was we went to a play in um in a very um Catholic neighborhood. And the play was about a Protestant woman who was killed in a suicide bombing, and and the whole room was full of Catholics. It was a very Catholic festival. And, I, and we were watching this play, and it was a horrible story about a mother losing a child, very painful, a lot of crying. And I was watching this thinking, I can't imagine the day that I would go to Ramallah and they would have a play about an Israeli victim of terrorism, and the room would be full with Palestinians crying over this. Or vice versa, that I would go to a theater in Jerusalem that's full of Jews crying over a palestinian who was killed by the idf like we so far away from that at the moment so on the one hand it's not the same conflict as ours but on the other hand in terms of reconciliation i think there's a lot that we have to learn from belfast Um, in regards to your questions about the two state solution so i just use that because there's a lot of data on the two state solution in terms of polling Um, it's not something many people support in jerusalem in fact, we once did a program at Kids for Peace where we asked kids to draw a map of the country where they lived. you know what happened? Everyone drew the same map from the river to the sea. All the Jews drew from the river to the sea, Israel. All the Palestinians from the river to the sea, Palestine. No one drew the Green Line. No one drew the 67 borders. Everyone here... Um, Jerusalem's a pretty right-wing city among among the Jews, and it's very nationalist among the Palestinians. Everyone here believes the whole country is theirs, um, and there's there's very little appetite for a two-state solution um, in 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 that in that in that regard. Um, there are other solutions that are not a two-state solution, which I can which I can go into. But um, I think um, I think for me, what's important is. I know in the US like a lot of political debate is about the two-state or one-state or federation or confederation. For me, it doesn't actually matter because for me what's important is like I want to take my kids to school and for them to get on a bus and for me to know that they're going to get home off that bus in safety. And a Palestinian wants to be able to walk around the old city without being asked for his ID and, and essentially face violence if he doesn't respond to the question in the right way. Um, I, I want Palestinians to be able to build homes in East Jerusalem uh, without fear that settler groups will, will take those homes and knock them down. I want the municipality to have equal funding for schools and businesses in East and West Jerusalem, which it doesn't have at the moment. So for me, like what you call it, whether it's one or two states, it, it's less important to me than what happens on the ground, which is equality. And and for now that that's not the case and and to me that's why there's no peace and any peace solution if it's going to work has to ensure that everyone has equal rights because for me that's the greatest antidote against violence people that have equal rights are generally not violent people that don't have equal rights are violent and that's everywhere in the world that's not a thing that's unique to us um, Bill uh, thank you uh,
4: Itai thanks for um all the great work you're doing and, and for sharing it with us. Um I, I want I'm I'm curious about um the the larger the, the 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 kids in the programs and their connections to families and communities. Um obviously I, I would assume, I guess, and maybe you can say more about this, that the 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 kids who come into these programs, their families are predisposed to some sort of peace peace orientation whether that's a social or a political ideology or or what have you but i'm curious as to what also what kind of change and transformation you see as a result of this program in smaller places like families communities neighborhoods what kind of ripple effects i guess is what you know what kind of ripple effects do you see on on the kind of small level from this right
1: look and you're right in a sense are we preaching to the converted for sure like kids that sign up to our program Especially the 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 Palestinians are more middle class. They have parents that often speak English, or one of the parents is American. Uh, many of the Jewish families are more liberal, Orthodox, or secular. We don't have many Haredi families. We don't have many Batari or Shalom fans. Um, you know, so we we do have um, somewhat of a self-selecting audience. But I think you know the NRA has people that like guns. You know, like every 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 group is going to speak to its core base and then hope that its core base can then um you know preach to the rest of the world uh what that is so yes obviously we we have a self selecting audience but and it's very hard for me to measure this i mean we do surveys and that sort of thing at the end of the year but but for me um i can i can say anecdotally like i definitely know that um I'll give you one, just a small example. So we had in the beginning of the year, we had a parents meeting where all the parents, while the kids are doing the program, sit in a different program. And we run something for the parents that's very, very similar to what we do for the kids, some games, dialogue, et cetera. One of the Muslim parents was wearing a hijab. And um, at the end, I, I spoke to one of the Jewish parents about how it was and how it felt. And the Jewish parents said to me, You know, I've lived in Jerusalem, you know, for several decades and I've seen many women with a hijab and I've never once spoken to a woman with a hijab. I've always just thought they're weird, they're different. I don't know, I just never... And now when I see... Because I've just spoken to one woman with a hijab, now when I'm walking on Palka Mesila or something like that and I see a woman with a hijab, I'm not going to be afraid. You know, and and that was one hour. One hour of dialogue has because it's the first encounter it's the first experience of hey this is not something you need to be afraid of so that's where we are you know it's it's again that's why i gave the analogy it's like the lgbt movement in the 1970s when the first person comes out of the closet and all of a sudden you realize hey i don't have to be afraid of gay people they're not they're not scary that sort of thing um and that's where we are now yeah um uh, sorry.
3: Uh, no. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to thank you for doing that, though, because I think people underestimate a lot of the time, though, just um, just how powerful it is to get one person. You know, I mean, I yeah. think people underestimate that a lot, though. So, thank you very much for doing that.
1: No, look, and that's that's why I, that's why I do this work, and that's why I believe in it. And you know, I've got a lot of friends that tell me, "Oh, you speak well, you write well, you should go into politics." And I'm like, I'm not going to achieve anything in politics because politics in this country is so broken. You know, we're, we're going to get a new prime minister in 24 hours. It's not, it's not going to change anything. Um, because because we've got a certain system that is politics just doesn't generate change. And I, I really believe that any change is going to happen through education, through grassroots. And that's why I wanna sort of devote my my time and my my energy to this, because it's it's what I believe in. And, and hopefully, you know, like, I, I don't necessarily know that I'll see peace in my lifetime, but I hope that as the name of our organisation implies, Seeds of Peace, that we're planting seeds, every, every activity we do is really a seed, and, and I hope that we'll grow into peace, because I'm an optimist. Thank you. Any other questions before I? I've got a few other slides, but any one question, comment, something like that? Uh, okay, so I'll just go back to the slides. Um, something else that I found interesting was this uh, this is a quote from Khalil Shikaki, he's a Palestinian pollster. And he said the following, the people are not taking the lead to demand progress from their leaders. Public opinion in both Palestine and Israel is therefore not an impediment to an agreement, but it will not drive one forward without a significant change of circumstances. What, what he found is that most people want peace, but they're not, they don't want it enough that they're going to lobby their politicians to do something about it because they think that there's no partner on the other side. And um, I really like this quote from uh, Barack Obama, who said in 2013 he said, and let me say to you this as a politician, I can promise you this political leaders will never take risks if the people do not push them to take some risks. You must create the change that you want to see. Ordinary people can accomplish extraordinary things. I'll give you another example of this, of how political change happens from the country where I grew up in. Um, which is Australia. Um, has anyone here been to Australia before? No? Okay. So it's basically like America but without Americans. And, um, you know, kangaroos, koalas, that sort of thing. So when I was 18 in 1996, we had this terrible mass shooting uh, in Port Arthur in Tasmania and, and 33 people were killed um, in, a, in a museum by a, a man with a mental illness um and it was it was a horrific death a lot of those people were were tourists and the and the government at that time was the conservative government and um that, that you know a lot of the people that voted for that government came from sort of rural conservative seats and there was an immense amount of pressure to to ban automatic rifles and and this government that was in power it basically there was the majority of the people wanted it, but the majority of their voters didn't want it. There were so much protests after this, you know, mass shooting where over 30 people were killed, that they eventually did something called a buyback scheme, where they said anyone that has a gun, whatever that gun is worth, 200, 300, 400 dollars, you bring it to a certain point, you get that cash from the government, um, and then they melted all the gun. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of guns. Uh, were 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 melted like in a very public. Uh, uh, there's a photo of there's it. It a big pile of them you can see, um, and and the leaders at the time they had to wear bulletproof vests after that because you know a lot of the people that owned guns weren't happy with that but they just felt like there was this overwhelming desire from the people to do something after this horrific tragedy that it that it should never happen again, and the reason I'm telling you that story is I often think about what what's the trigger point that's gonna make Israelis and Palestinians say enough? You know, where's where's the point where we say we can't do this anymore? And I don't know where that is because we've had dozens of wars, suicide bombings, attacks, children being killed, knives, stabbings, you name it, like bus bombings, like where where's the point where we say enough, I, I can't do this anymore, and I want change because I think the cycle we're in at the moment is one where often when something bad happens to us, we feel like we need to use more force. so so Palestinians feel like Israel's done something bad to us. we need to find more rockets. we need to we need to stab or kidnap or kill someone, and, and Israelis feel like they're firing rockets at us, we need to flatten gaza we need to we need to, to knock down entire buildings. you know th- there's often a sense of when the other side causes me pain, I need to cause them more pain. If I cause them more pain, then I'll win. And and I understand because revenge is a very natural emotion and it's very hard to tell someone who's lost a loved one that revenge is wrong. I thankfully haven't lost a loved one in this conflict and I don't plan on losing a loved one. So I don't know how I would respond. But I, I think we need, we need to somehow find a circuit breaker that says that sharing this land, even though we might not get everything we want, is preferable to fighting and dying for this land forever.
0: Itai, I have a question for you. How, how, um, how do you think about the bridge between the micro experience with kids from East and West Jerusalem into kind of a macro worldview. That is to say, so you try we try to address the dehumanization um, through these face-to-face encounters, but then it the system is still evil, right? That the the enemy system is still evil. So how do we move that from from the psychologically from the micro to macro, like on on in your pedagogical approach? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so this is the hard thing. Like, we deal with children. Like, our kids are 12, 13 years old. They're not politicians. They're not going to demonstrations. They're not writing. They're literally kids. Um, there are other peace organisations that, that deal with adults and they do what I would call standard political activism, but we don't do that. Um, and and we, because we feel like it's important for kids to have that exposure. And hopefully when they're adults, you know, they'll they'll, Get involved in those organizations that do political activism um, i think the political activism is very important i mean one of my favorite organizations is called on dimba or nakef in in arabic standing together uh, their logo is purple and and they do a lot of grassroots jewish arab organizing on um, i recently had a successful campaign to raise the minimum wage to 40 shekels an hour um, which actually got past the first reading in the Knesset. And that was a joint Jewish-Arab thing that actually passed with Haredi and Arab votes um, because they were they were trying to find an area where there's solidarity between Jews and Arabs. And as you know, in Israel, the cost of living is very, very high at the moment because of Ukraine and similar issues that makes it high in the US as well. And um, and so, so that was a campaign they did. They're doing another campaign now on rent prices, um, but to find areas where there is a common interest, healthcare is another one. The everyone wants good healthcare. Corona is another one. Everyone <laughs> needs the, you know, at the time, corona tests, vaccines, etc. So you know, to find areas where there's common cause and then to work together on on those things, it's not a perfect answer. And again, we we're a drop in the ocean into a very big mess and at the moment, again, I think we're speaking to one, two percent of the population. When when we're reaching 20 or 30 percent of the population, that's going to have huge ripple effects. And we're not there yet because you know, we're very small, we're underfunded, we we you know, we, we've got a lot going against us, but we're trying to plant those seeds in the hope that it will change. And 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 I again, I I don't tell the kids to go to political demonstration because it's really not a safe thing to do. As a child in, in Jerusalem, our demonstrations can get um, pretty messy. If you've seen what happens in demonstrations here, so I would never tell a child to go to a demonstration or think that that's what their parents want me to tell them either. Um, but but I do tell them to to speak out against racism wherever they are, and and in in the hope that that, that will spread out throughout the communities.
3: I can say um, it will work. It's just going to take forever for it to work. Yeah. Because yeah, um, the only thing that seems to actually get people, you know, to change their minds is empathy, and mm-hmm. it takes a very—it's a slow, painstaking process. But yeah, it will work. We just probably will be dead by the time. <laughs> well, not—it's not a nice thing to say, but probably the over forty crowd won't be won't be here. <laughs> so.
1: yeah. But again, like, if you look at every other social movement, you know, if you would have gone to South Africa three years before apartheid ended, mm-hmm. and you would have asked anyone in South Africa, is apartheid going to end in four years, everyone would have said no.
2: Yes. Slavery
1: in the US, LGBT, even women having the right to vote, think four years before women had the right to vote, mm-hmm. no one supported it. Um, so, you know, like, so many social changes that you think are never going to happen, something happens, and it could, like you know why apartheid ended? Because the Cold War ended. I mean, that had nothing to do with South Africa, but the Cold War ended. There was a massive shift in the balance of power all over the world. And that was one of the triggers to cause that... that. You know why Gilad Shalit was released from, from prison by Hamas when Israel exchanged a 1,000 prisons for him? Because of the social justice pro- protests over the cost of cottage cheese the government was sort of looked to changing the agenda, and then they they sort of did this this uh, deal that had been on the on the cards for five years. That's not me saying that; that's confirmed by the Prime Minister's office. Um, so you know, change happens. We're all
3: those moments.
1: <laughs> yeah, just yeah, you never expect it, um, right? You know, if you would have told me these Abraham Accords now with the UAE, with Morocco, um, with with Sudan, etc., I, I wouldn't have believed that a few years ago. There's talk even that you know, Biden's coming to Jerusalem in two weeks and there's talk that he might even be hooking up sort of peace agreement with Saudi Arabia. Um, I I don't know if that will happen, but that's a huge game changer. You know, Saudi Arabia is is the capital and the holy place of the Islamic world. Saudi Arabia signing a peace deal with Israel changes the balance of power. Imagine the regime in Iran would fall tomorrow. You know, then all of a sudden, so many alliances that are based around that hatred and, and fear of, of Iran would, would change in a moment. So sometimes something can happen in another country that you don't expect mm-hmm. and it affects you in, in quite a personal way and you can't really predict it. And so I um, I very much avoid speaking about the future because I know whatever I say about the future will always be wrong. But I, as a history teacher, I always look to the past and I, and I know that that history changes because of very unlikely events often that you can't predict
3: you're just ready you're working yeah. so that you'll be ready for it
1: inshallah yeah for <laughs> so that um any other questions comments thoughts um uh, Shmule, i think you're on mute yeah. you're talking
0: Thank you so much, Itai, for this uh, amazing uh, session and to learn about your work. Open up uh, a window to this uh, this this world of what you're engaged with. Um, It looks like you're going to share a closing slide. Oh, good. There's your contact info.
1: Yeah, I just wanted to share a, a quote. I always finish every presentation with this quote: that when we're in Belfast, people in Belfast love to drink beer. Like you know, they, they drink beer like we do Musaf, you know, it's like their favourite thing. And um, a lot of the pubs in Belfast have like different quotes and things on the wall. And And we passed this pub and I, I love this quote. It's called the Carrick. And the quote said, the nation that keeps one eye on the past is wise. The nation that keeps two eyes on the past is blind. And I, and I just felt for us at Kids for Peace, that's like a perfect quote to put on a T-shirt because in Jerusalem, we remember events that happened a 1,000 years ago as if they happened yesterday. And that causes us to hate and to fear and to, to clash over holy places. And, and we often keep two eyes on the past and on the history and on all the wrongs that have been done to us by our enemies. And and it causes us some, some to be blind to peace and to the opportunity to live in a different way. And I think what we're trying to do is to say let's keep one eye on the past about our Jewish history and our Jewish memory, and that's very important, but also keep one eye on the future as well, for peace. So um, yeah, with that, if you would like to support our work or stay in touch or visit us in Jerusalem, uh, that's my website, that is my email, and that's where you can find us on Instagram. I'm, I'm really grateful to Shmuley for this invitation uh to join you tonight um i wish i could be there in person or you could be here in jerusalem but uh, at least we got to have this uh conversation and i hope you found it meaningful and interesting and tell people that we exist most people don't know we exist and it's important that people know that there is something like kids for peace in jerusalem so uh
0: Thank you so much. And just to share, um, our actually, our next three upcoming events are, are, are of some relatively similar themes. Uh, next week, we have Zionism and its critics with Dr. Sarah Elhershorn. And also next week with Professor Joshua Shanes we have the battle of definitions. What is anti Semitism and why does its definition matter? Um, and just after that, um, Corona exegesis political cartoons, Jewish holidays in Israeli society. hope you'll continue to learn with us um each week have a wonderful day god bless thanks itai thank you all
1: um and and, uh joshua shanis and uh sarah hirshon are both good friends of mine so i um i very much recommend uh uh, uh, yeah seeing them and learning from them they're very wise